Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Pamela Brewer welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. As a little one for today's guest, her grandmother would often ask her, why are all these white women dying to be thin? I would suggest that grandma had no idea that her question would have such an impact on her little granddaughter. Again, folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk, and today's guest is Dr. Sabrina Strings. She is an assistant professor of sociology at UC Irvine. Her research examines how the intersecting structures of race, class, and sexuality are marshaled to validate social inequality. Sabrina, Dr. Sabrina Strings is also a co-founding editor of the new journal Race and Yoga. So we've got a lot to talk about. Dr. Strings, welcome to Mind Talk. It's great to be on with you. Now, Dr. Strings, you have authored a book, which is the primary uh, topic of today's conversation. The book you have authored is, is titled Fearing the Black Bodies. The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. Now, you just heard me describe your research focus, so I want you to tell us exactly what that means as you explain to us what fearing the black body is all about. Well, as you mentioned, I came through this project through my grandmother, who had been asking me for years as a child, what can explain all of the white women in our integrated community who are on diets. You know, this was not something she experienced in the segregated community that she grew up in before she came to California as part of the Great Migration. So about a decade later, I became interested in this topic. I decided that I wanted to research it. And what I began with was the whole fear of fatness that persists within the medical community. Because many people believe that the primary reason that fat stigma exists is that there are medical concerns surrounding it. As I started to research the topic, I found that there were actually two world events that were critical to the development of fat phobia, the rise of the transatlantic slave trade and the spread of Protestantism. So this goes back long before any of the contemporary medical concerns. And when you say it goes back long before, you, you also take a look at how women, both black and white, were depicted in artwork. And so I'm going to ask you about Ruben. Ruben is certainly uh, a, a painter of, of which many people are aware. And you tell us that his story helps us to understand the unfolding, I'm now quoting you, unfolding preference for full-bodied white women. So for those who don't know, give us a tiny second thumbnail sketch of who Ruben was and how his story impacts the story that you tell in Fearing the Black Body. Yes, well, Rubens was an important painter um, in the late Renaissance, early Baroque period. And we commonly remember him today for his voluptuous paintings of nudes and the three graces and Venus in front of the mirror. Um, many of us have seen his drawings. And in fact, the voluptuous women are often described as Rubenesque because of his eminence. But what people don't know is that in his diary, as he was describing the ideal representation of beauty, he suggested that women should have skin as, quote, white as snow. So even though he occasionally drew black women, as did some of the earlier Renaissance artists, 
for him, the epitome of beauty was voluptuous white women. Now, it, there, there's a piece of art that you uh, referenced titled The Four Rivers of Paradise. And in that one, certainly, the, as you just described, the, the body of the white woman and the body of the black woman, well, you tell us, were they the same? Were they different? What was the importance of that? Well, this is how Rubens became an interesting character, because in the earlier generation of artists of the Renaissance, people like Titian, you would find that there was um, typically this idea that black women and white women had equally alluring and curvaceous physiques, and so that people wanted to be able to depict them as such, even if black women were thought to have a lower social standing. But by the time Rubens was drawing, there was much more of a conflict happening. So for him, in some of his drawings, such as in the Four Rivers, you could see um, black women, a black woman as curvaceous and regal. Um, and even at the center of attention within this particular painting, even as in some of his later works, you would see black women depicted as very small with wizened faces. And uh, rather than being beautiful themselves, being admirers of European women's beauty. So what was he trying to say to us and what was he perhaps struggling with himself in terms of a full depiction of a woman's beauty? In the earlier period, what we saw was that black women were a novelty. So in the 1500s, when black women appeared as this sort of like fleshy and alluring um, body types, it was because, for the most part, slavery hadn't been going on that long, and it was rare to see an African, and the representation of them was that they were these sort of, like, beautiful curiosities in a respect. But by about 100 years later, when Rubens was sort of entering the portrait, what we find is that there was a greater contestation about African aesthetics, that people who had previously thought that, well, there are figures and, uh, black women's figures and white women's figures are the same, started to think, Actually, white women are the true beauties. They're the true curvaceous beauties. Whereas black women are smaller, um, they're less attractive. They would call them sometimes little, low, and foul. So as Rubens is entering this moment in which there's the shift in notions of physical attractiveness as it pertains to black women. Tell us about Sarah. There was a black woman uh, by the name of Sarah who was also referred to as a Venus and who, interestingly enough, at one point, um, if I understand it correctly, was, quote-unquote, owned by a black man. That's right. So Sarah, um, also known as Starchy Bartman, the hot and top Venus, she was born in the late 18th century in Cape Town, South Africa, which at that time was a British colony. And she was owned, that is correct, by a free black man. And he would take her to the ports where she would meet these British soldiers and she would dance for them, almost like a striptease. And there was a British entrepreneur who saw her there performing her act and thought, I could make a mint off of her if I could only get her to Europe. So he bought her from the black man who owned her at the time and then took her first to London and then to Paris. And his goal was to be able to show the unique type of beauty uh, that was uh, um, that existed on the African continent. So by this time, we're talking about the early 19th century, far removed from the ideas of Peter Paul Rubens in the 17th century. What we have is this new idea that black women are actually 
avaricious, they're sensuous, they love sex, they love food. And because of this, they're overly fat. And so when he took Sarah Bartman to Europe, his goal was to be able to show, look at the excessive size of black women. She is the, quote, perfect specimen of her race. And for many urbanites in London and Paris, they had never seen a black woman in their lives. And so it was their first time to be able to see one. And she was supposed to represent the voluptuousness and also by that time, the savagery of Africans. Dr. Strings, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to bring your historical research up just a little bit to today's Warland and talk about the impact of the concept of fat phobia in the world in which we live today. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk, and we will be back in just a moment. Dr. Strings, just before the break, I said I wanted to bring us forward a bit, but I actually can't do that until I ask you to tell us a little bit about Dr. Kellogg, who is associated with the cereals that so many people consume today. He was quite something, wasn't he? That's right. And I think many people aren't aware of the fact that he was actually a doctor, a medical doctor, in addition to being a Seventh-day Adventist. And for him, he really wanted to be able to combine his religious intensity with his passion for medicine. And so what he thought was the most important thing during his era, and he's now writing at the late 19th century, so you know, many years removed from the image of Sarah Bartman in Europe, what he was concerned about was how slender so many white American women had gotten. So thinking about the fact that the racial scientific discourse was telling people Fatness is black already by the late 18th and early 19th centuries. So that in America, by the mid-19th of the late 19th century, a lot of white persons had taken it upon themselves to constantly be on diets. Right? So going back to my grandmother's comments. Um, so Kellogg said, we need to reform American women's physiques. We need to figure out a way to get them to eat more, eat the right food, and to do it for God. 
to do it for God. Right. And he would not have been the first person who was both a doctor and some type of like lay minister, because there was another guy who was a precursor to Kellogg by the name of George Shane, who was in London. And he had a very similar idea, which was that we've got to be able to reform the physiques of our countrymen um, and women. When he was writing, he was actually concerned about people being too fat. But by the time that Kellogg came along with very similar ideas, he was concerned about people being too slim. And so consider an American doctor writing in the early 20th century, trying to figure out a way to get women to eat more. That was his goal. And, of course, today we find that to be very shocking. Uh, a- absolutely. You, now we're going to leap forward just a couple of years. You talk about the BMI, the body mass index, which in today's world is very much seen as an indicator of health or the lack thereof. But you kind of have a different view. Talk to us about that. So... The obesity epidemic, so I'm put that in quotes, is something that we have been apparently, according to the medical community, living with for the past 20 years. But what people often don't tell you is the history of how we came to BMI as a measure of health outcomes. BMI was actually created in the 19th century by a Belgian statistician, and he was very clear that this was not intended to be used to measure individual adiposity or the amount of fat on an individual person's body. And the reason should be fairly obvious. BMI is a measure of weight to health. And in that way, you can't really tell about an individual's adiposity, about their fat. Sarah, let let me, I'm sorry, Um, Sabrina, let me interrupt you because there was some music that came in in the background. So I just want to go back and ask you the question about uh, BMI again. And if you would start the answer all over again. Sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, Dr. Strings, You talk about the BMI, the body mass index, and you say it is an arbitrary measure of overall health and mortality, which is not at all what we have certainly been taught to believe in today's world. So give us a little understanding of your position with respect to the BMI number. Absolutely. So BMI is actually a tool that was created by a Belgian statistician, in the 19th century. And he wanted to be able to use it to determine average population weight. Um, However, when it was adopted in the 1970s in the United States, it was being used in a very different fashion that he did not intend or recommend, which was to measure the fat on an individual person's body, their so-called adiposity. BMI is a poor measure of this. And I'm not the only one who said this. There have been um, journalists, including Nate Silver with 538. There have been psychologists like um, A. Janet Tomiyama at UCLA. And there have also been many physicians or people with PhDs in medical sciences, including Catherine Flagel, who works for the Centers for Disease Control. All of these people have shown that when you're looking at a measure to, of weight to height, you're not able to capture a person's adiposity. And for this reason, it's not a good tool to measure health outcomes. Nevertheless, based on BMI alone, we are supposedly in an obesity epidemic in which we're all supposed to be concerned about bringing our BMIs down. Um, It's a completely flawed tool. And one of the major problems with it is that when we use it, we identify black women as a threat to the public health because black women often have elevated BMIs. And why is it that black women have elevated BMIs? 
Oh, there's all kinds of reasons for this, actually. Studies going back to the 1980s have shown that black women and men frequently have greater levels of muscularity than European populations. Similarly, what BMI studies have shown us is that Asian Americans typically have lower levels of muscularity and uh, less bone density than European populations. And so when we look just at BMI, we're not able to capture body composition in any way, not bone density, not muscularity, not the distribution of fat on an individual's body. And so it leads to some confusing results. And again, it's often being used to suggest that black women are too fat and must do something to tame their bodies. So for, for those people listening who are thinking, you know, I am way too heavy. And, you know, way too heavy very often is one's own personal view. And what is reflected in one's mirror is not necessarily what the outside world sees. But that nevertheless. What do you say to those people who are listening to you and say, oh, well, you know, maybe it's okay to be fat. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. What do you say to them? I would say they should take a look at the work on health at every size, because this is a movement that is going on throughout the United States, but there's definitely a stronghold in the Bay Area of California, in which they're reminding people that if we're truly interested in being healthy, we can encourage people to adopt healthy lifestyles. We can encourage them to eat more fresh produce. We can encourage them to get more um, clean air and exercise and drink clean water. We also have to, of course, as a society, agree that we need to work hard to make these things available because there are many communities in which they are not available. So what Health at Every Size says is that rather than focusing on the number on the scale, what we can do is engage in healthful practices in a way that is not um, attempting to terrorize populations and tell them they have to do this or, you know, they're killing themselves, but is, in fact, uplifting and and gives people the opportunity to feel well within themselves without feeling stigmatized for their size. You make a point in uh, Fearing the Black Body about uh, persons coming from other areas. You you say, and I quote, uh, we like to forget that Irish, Italians, Russian Jews, and Polish people were not always considered white in the United States. In fact, during the height of immigration for each ethnic group, they were racialized as part Negroid or hybrid peoples. Why is that important? That's important because the immigration of these individuals from their various countries in Europe to the United States contributed to the rise of fat phobia in the United States. And the reason is this. A lot of the discourse about black people that was circulating in Europe, such as that surrounding Sarkozy Bartman that we already talked about, made its way back to the United States. So even if she never came to the U.S. on her own, people were well aware of these racial stereotypes, even in the North, right? So in the American North, where you know, slavery was much um, diminished, let's say, although not absent, um, it, it would have been uncommon to run into a black person in the American North. Nevertheless, they were well aware of these stereotypes as they were coming from Europe. So when the Irish in particular were coming in the uh, 1830s through the 1850s, what we were seeing was that there was this new idea, this new racial theory that suggested that the Irish were actually part black. And there were all of these ethnologists, many of them were British, who were writing about the apparent migration of the Irish people historically from Africa, somehow bypassing England altogether, but making their way to the Ireland. Um, 
And so the argument was that these people are part black. And when they came to the U.S., the argument, the, a lot of the discourse suggested that because they were part black, they were swarthy in skin color, and they were also fat. So, you know, in, in reminding us that there was a time when um, Irish, Italians, Russian Jews, and Polish people were uh, not considered white, but in fact considered part Negroid, you're breaking the hearts of a lot of people uh, who have seen <laughs> themselves as being white. Wh- why are you doing that? <laughs> well, you know, whiteness is a myth. Um, in reality, a lot of these racial categories, we put a lot of stock in them, but they are simply something that was invented by philosophers in, you know, the 17th through the 19th centuries and that we hold on to dearly, even though they don't really mean anything. Uh, and don't get me wrong, this is not to say that racism does not exist because it absolutely does. But we have to recognize that the racial categories that they're based on are not rooted in biology. They're not even rooted in culture. They're just rooted in brute, geographical carving up of the world and trying to suggest that people who happen to be from various regions somehow are all alike. We know that to be completely false. You and I have been talking largely about women. Um, in our conversation thus far, did men have the same challenges in terms of how they were seen? Was slimness or the lack of thereof considered an indication of something in men? Actually, when the trend to slenderness first began, it began in the 17th century as far as we have record in the Western world, it was men who were taking to slenderness. The very same Rubens who was known for drawing these women who were sort of like fleshy and rounded actually wanted for himself to remain a slender man. Um, For him and for many men in the 17th century, the idea was that if you were a man and you were in control of yourself, you wanted to have a lean physique because that showed that you were not overrun by your animal appetites, as they would call it. Um, But at the same time in the 17th century, they thought it was quite wonderful to have curvaceous women on their arms because that was sexy, but it had nothing to do with, what was uh, an indication of a rational man because that involves slenderness. What we have done to ourselves is really quite interesting over the years. I would say so. And I think it's, for me, it was important to uncover the roots of this because for many of us, these just seem like, well, natural parts of our world. We probably would have never questioned why a person should be slender because it's, we're getting all of these messages from many different places that it's important. Uh, but when we look at the historical record and then also especially looking at the record within the field of medicine itself, we can find there were a lot of decisions that were made that didn't have to do with health outcomes, mm-hmm. but instead had to do with religious fervor and they had to do with race science. Tell us, veering away from fearing the black body uh, for a moment, uh, I also introduced you at the beginning of the program as being the co-founding editor of Race and Yoga. How did the two of those intersect? Well, that's a great question, and it's one that we get relatively frequently. Um, Similar to what we're seeing, interestingly enough, with obesity and the way in which it seems like there's no racial component to it, Yoga in the United States, especially in the mainstream, is often represented as practitioners by white people. Um, Now, many people may be unaware that yoga derives from the Indus Valley civilization, 
some couple thousand years ago, uh, and the place that we now consider to be India. And when it was brought to the United States uh, in the late 19th century, a lot of the people who took up the practice by that time were white women. And we've sort of stayed with that legacy up until today. Most of the advertisements, the magazines that you see will feature white women doing yoga. And part of what we're trying to do in our group is to remind people yoga came from a particular culture. And when we practice it here, we should do so in a way that is honoring that culture, that is respectful, and that is inclusive of all people. It, it really is a fascinating conversation. Hopefully I can have you back on to talk more about that. I think it's something that would be really eye-opening for many people. But as today we are running out of time, I have to ask you, there's so much more to fearing the black body than we've been able to get at today. How can folks get more information about fearing the black body? You can take a look at the website, nyupress.org. Um, there they have plenty of information about the book, uh, synopsis. You can also find um, on their blog, From the Square, um, a little piece that I've written that explains how fat phobia affects everyone. Even if you're a man, even if you're a slender person, it affects all of us. Wonderful. Thank you so much, certainly for the exhaustive research you've done on this issue, but thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Thank you so much for having me on. Folks, as you have heard, Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, uh, you can get information about it at nyupress.org. And you probably just want to Google Dr. Sabrina Strings and get a lot more information about the work that she's doing. Mind Talk is brought to you as a regular conversation about relationships and mental health. Hope you will continue to tune in. If you would like to be in touch with me directly, I can be reached at Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A at mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Mindtalk is available on many different platforms. If you've got a favorite one and you can't find Mindtalk there, just let us know and we'll see what we can do to make it happen. And remember always, folks, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.
Thank you.